Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Amen. Well, we're continuing the series that uh, uh, I began a while ago. And it's part four today. It's called Being. And the reality is, friends, that you and I are called to be the church. So what does it take to be the church? Because the moment you gave your life to Jesus, a whole bunch of stuff shifts, but a few things happen. One is you become included in that body of believers. You become a part of God's family. But the second thing that happens when we say yes to Jesus is that we actually become then a part of God's mission. Uh, a part of his plan to reach this world with the good news of Jesus' love and forgiveness and salvation. Because in the New Testament, the church is not a building, it's not a location. Geography has nothing to do with it because the understanding we have uh, in the New Testament is the church now becomes a body, a living body. Jesus is the head of the church and you and I are the members of that body, the, the church. And God continues the work and the ministry of Jesus through you and I, through the church today. So if we're going to be the church, then it's really, really important for us to understand uh, what that looks like. It's important for us to know our message. It's really important for us to know what our mission is. And so we've been using uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans in the New Testament, as a background for this. And of all of Paul's writings, this is uh, quite an unusual letter for the fact that he's actually writing to people he's never met. Most of Paul's other writings are written to churches that he's planted or people that he knows really, really well. Uh, he doesn't have that with the church in Rome. He'd never been there. And so he's writing saying, hey, guys, I'm coming to you. And when I come to you, this is the message that I will be bringing. And conveniently, Paul's letter to the Romans is kind of divided into two sections. The first part for the first two and a half or so chapters, um, he's talking about really what's the problem with humanity? What's the problem that exists in the world today? And then he spends the rest of the letter talking about the wonderful solution to that problem, the gospel, the message of the gospel of Jesus. Um, today I'm going to pick up where we left off because we'd spent two weeks actually looking at a really interesting topic, and that's the wrath of God. Uh, and we looked, first of all, at what it is in the world today that provokes God's wrath. What is it that makes God angry? And then we looked at how that wrath is expressed in the world today. And he presents all of this in the present tense. But then he talks in the future tense about a day of wrath that is coming, a day of judgment. Romans 2 and 5, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Down to verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Now the truth is this topic of wrath and judgment is not a popular topic. And that's not an easy topic to talk about. It's certainly not an easy topic to preach about. But friends, we're going to take this issue very, very seriously because it affects all of us. 
We can't be indifferent about it. We can't be flippant about it. We can't say, well, that's some kind of obscure Christian doctrine and we prefer to kind of bury that down the back somewhere and, and not deal with it. But friends, this is real and it's about your life and it's about my life. It's something that I personally will have to face. It's something that you personally will have to face. And I, whilst I would suggest on one hand it's a really, really difficult topic, judgment is actually really, really necessary. Uh, in fact, uh, when you look at it from a societal level, societies cannot function without accountability for our behaviour. Nations establish constitutions. From those constitutions, they establish laws and then they establish courts of law in which people who have broken those laws can be legally and fairly judged. That's how society works. And one of the things that makes society work is that we are accountable for our behaviour. Societies cannot exist without laws. You cannot have laws without judgment and you cannot have judgment without punishment. And human beings' ultimate accountability is to God and God judges us. We are accountable to God for the way that we live, which means this, God actually cares about the way you and I live. And so that accountability, that judgment is not an expression of God not liking us. It's actually an indication that He values us. It's an indication that He loves us. It actually gives us great dignity. It tells us that we're not evolutionary coincidences, that our lives aren't incidental, our lives aren't accidental. And Paul says on that day of judgment, every one of us will stand accountable before God. Now I can imagine the church in Rome, if they're anything like us anyway, um, when they're having this letter read out to them, I can imagine that by the end of chapter 1, they're feeling pretty good about themselves and they're giving hearty amens to the things that Paul is saying. Because they would have heard things like Romans 1 and 29, where it says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And Paul is giving an analysis of the society and the, these people in the church in Rome would have been Paul, you've absolutely nailed it. You, you, you've absolutely nailed the culture. This stuff goes on around us day by day, every single time. And I can hear all of their amens. But then he immediately goes on to say this in chapter 2 and verse 1. Switching it from they to you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And then 42 times in the next 29 verses, 
he speaks about you, your, and yours. And Paul says, guys, this is about you. And friends, can I say this is what I find to be one of the saddest things uh, about the church at times. And certainly you see this reflected on uh, social media increasingly. Uh, You see the keyboard warriors and the internet trolls. Nothing seems to unite the church. Nothing seems to unite Christians as much as exposing and condemning other people's sins. They. Little else seems to unite us as much as that does. Nothing seems to feed people's egos like the exposure of other people's failures. Now, it's really easy to get a crowd of Christians together to protest about other people's failures and sins. And I can imagine the church in Rome having this letter read to them, hearing all about they, 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 and they're yesing and amening and yesing, amening and yesing and amening. And then Paul masterfully just turns the whole thing around. Saying, hey guys, you're feeling pretty good about yourselves up until this point. I was talking about them. Now I'm talking about you. And friends, today this is about you. This is about me. This is about us. We're not looking out there. The focus right now is here. It's on us, in you and in me. And we're talking about God's judgment. And three things we need to note about God's judgment. I'm going to unpack just for a few minutes. First of all, God's judgment is individual. God doesn't give blanket judgment. He doesn't make blanket statements. And again, this speaks to the value of us individually. God's judgment is individually applied. It is individually given. Again, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Well, Paul, that's a little bit harsh. Whatever, at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. That just seems to be taking it a little bit too far. Well, apparently not. Because here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, why does Jesus make the assumption that there's a plank in your own eye? Well, I think it's another lesson entirely, but I think it's fairly true to say that where there is this accentuated habit of judging others, it's often symptomatic of a cover-up going on within ourselves. And Jesus would say, guys, it's all well and good to shake your head and, and, and look at everybody else down your nose and give that disapproving look and revel in all the juicy gossip. But what about you? And this is what Paul is picking up. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And then he says this in verse 2. I find this interesting. He says, now we know that God's judgment, 
is based on truth. God's judgment is based on truth. That's a wake-up call. Because human judgment, our judgment, is most often based on comparison. We constantly compare ourselves to others and we love to feel somehow that we are doing so much better than everybody else. And the brutal truth is that when we judge others, I think we are just trying in vain to stroke our own ego. And then he says in verse 11, God does not show favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism, but the reality is we often do. And I think the worst kind of favoritism is when we show favoritism towards ourselves. We have all kinds of justifications for our own behavior. We have also all kinds of justification for our own sin. And we become extremely defensive about ourselves. So the first thing Paul points out is that God's judgment is individual. The second thing that we discover in these verses is that God judges the heart. It's internal. Romans 2 and 18, God will judge men's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ. Friends, God is never, ever fooled by externals. It's our secrets that become exposed and become open. And we've got to be so honest with ourselves. We've got to be so honest with God about this stuff. Because as much as we try to keep our secrets hidden, they will eventually make their way out and God judges the heart. God is actually so much more concerned with how pure your heart is rather than how well behaved you are. Can I hear an amen? Remember when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount? He said this in Matthew 5 and 21. <coughs> You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And at that point, people probably would have thought, yep, that's a really, really good rule, that one. We like that one. It's good. Thanks very much. But then Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Verse 27, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what's he saying? Well, context is really, really important. And we've got to understand who his audience are. His audience are a group primarily of Jews. And Jewish people felt that their standing with God, their righteousness before God was all about how well they obeyed the law. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This is next level. It's not about externals. This is not about good behavior because with a little bit of discipline, we can all look good on the outside. He's saying that's not the real you. The real you is what goes on inside of you, your internal life. And he says that is what's going to be exposed. Because, friends, we can all have our own hidden agendas. We can all have our little secrets, our secret intentions. We can have uh, all kinds of false motives. And we can go about life with an external that looks fine. But Paul warns us it's all going to be exposed. And God is not the slightest bit interested in how good you look when you turn up to church on a Sunday if that isn't the way that we behave when we go home. How do I know that? Well, let's look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the outside of the cup and dish, and then the, uh, the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be also clean. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And the point that Paul is making to the church in Rome is that God's judgment is internal. Romans 2 and 16, again, God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Now, remember at this point, friends, we are talking about the problem. Uh, the really cool thing, much to everybody's relief, is that next week we actually start talking about the solution to the problem. And we're all looking forward to that. What we begin to see is that when God does a work within us, it's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. God, by His Holy Spirit, begins to transform us from the inside and it works itself out. Because if we were just dealing with externals, if we were just dealing with the fact that, you know, I, I, um, I made a decision for Jesus at some point in my life. I, I, I received His gift of eternal life. I took that eternal life ticket, stuck it back in, in my back pocket uh, and uh, I can walk through the rest of my life with that eternal security. I've said this time and time and time and time again, but it's important for us to know that when we reduce the cross of Jesus to just allowing us to go to heaven when we die, we're reducing the cross of Jesus to a doormat to wipe our dirty feet so we can get into heaven. And that is not the gospel message. That is not who we are as the church. Uh, it is far deeper, far richer, far broader than that. So first of all, God's judgment is individual. God's judgment, secondly, is internal. And then the third thing that Paul shows us is that God's judgment is impartial. What do I mean by that? Well, in this congregation in the church in Rome, there's kind of two groups of people. There are Gentile Christians, so non-Jewish Christians who have come to Christ. And then there are the Jewish converts, the Jews who have wonderfully found faith in Jesus. And what he does is turn his attention for a moment to the Jewish section of the congregation. Because I think they probably suffered with an attitude that we as God's people uh, still suffer from today. And that's this, that because we are the people of God and because there are a whole bunch of promises and a whole bunch of securities that come with being the people of God, it is way too easy for us to become a little bit elitist Way too easy for us to become a little bit self-righteous, to start looking down our noses at other people. And we develop this huge sense of entitlement. And because we get a little bit too confident in our relationship with God, we can also come to the place of wrongly thinking that my sin, maybe it doesn't matter quite so much anymore. So he says in the following verses, in verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, verse 18, you know His will, you approve of what is superior because you were instructed by the law. Verse 19, you're convinced that you're a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark. Verse 20, you are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, this drips with sarcasm. 
Paul is saying this, guys, you call yourself something, you brag about something else, uh, you, you approve of that, you don't approve of this, you're a guide to these over here, you're an instructor to those over there, you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, basically is saying, well, you guys have got it all together. You know it all. You haven't got anything left to learn. You guys are so good. And he's being sarcastic. You think you're better than everyone else, but all your elitist attitude has done is that it has developed within you a soft conscience towards your own sin. Romans 2 and 21, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, listen to this, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a pretty sobering verse. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Friends, here's the truth. The sins of the Christian actually have far greater significance than the sins of the world out there. Think of it, because you and I, in Christ, should be living a different kind of life. If we are allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work within us, we should be living differently. The Holy Spirit should be reproducing the character of God within us. I'm not saying we can be perfect because we can't. But there should be something evident within us that God is doing an ongoing work. And the big issue that Paul says is this, that when the Christian sins, God gets blasphemed. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And we know, friends, the media loves it when a high-profile Christian messes up. And the world is not stupid. They're not stupid. Because they see that stuff and they go, really, that's a Christian? And you think I would be interested in your God? Look at the incredible damage to the reputation of God that the abuse of children by pedophile priests and ministers has done. Incredible damage. No wonder the church has lost its authority. No wonder the church has lost its credibility. Think of what has been done to blaspheme the name of God. In the minds of the people who look to the church, they see that stuff going on and they say, and they're the people who teach righteousness. Yeah, right. They're the people who are outspoken against abortion. Yeah, right. They're the people who get all hung up on family values and marriage. Yeah, right. And we, wouldn't, we, 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 we just can't comprehend how the name of God is blasphemed because of the inexcusable sinfulness of Christian leaders. And I think Paul probably knows that the people who are having this letter read to them would be feeling a little bit uncomfortable at this point. So he anticipates a question. Romans 3 and 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what, what value in circumcision? 
In other words, the thinking and the question that he's anticipating is this. Well, hang on. I am a Jew in covenant relationship with God. So I can't lose that covenant relationship. So why does it really matter? I thought that if I'm a Christian, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, I'm in right standing with God because of Jesus. I have security in my relationship with Him. I can't lose that. So surely it doesn't really matter as much. Because if that's not right, what advantage is there in being a Christian? And friends, there's a wonderful little paradox here that Paul touches on. Because he goes on to explain that the very advantages we do have in being in right relationship with God actually gives us a greater capacity for sin. Stay with me. Because he says, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Romans 3 and 2, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Which means this, because you have been entrusted with the very words of God, a wonderful privilege we have as God's people, he says that means now you have less of an excuse, less of a justification to sin. Luke, 28 and 40, uh, Luke 12 and 48, for, every, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Now we often think about that in terms of material things and, and finances. And that's a useful application. But actually the literal application is in regards to knowledge. The more you know, the more you're accountable for what you know. James 4 and 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, since. So listen carefully. Every new thing you learn about God, every new thing you discover about His Word creates greater potential for sin because you now know something you didn't know before and you can commit sin because you now know something you didn't know before. Does that make sense? So if I've done my job each Sunday, that means this. If I've taught you something new, I've actually increased your capacity to sin. So if somebody says to you tomorrow, hey, how was church yesterday? You can say this. Well, it was really, really good. I came away with a greater capacity to sin. And it's actually a compliment because it means you've learned something. Make sense? Thank, thank you, Michael. Well, it was definitely Michael, yes. So friends, there are great advantages in being a Christian because we enjoy the benefits of what we know, but that knowledge also gives us a greater capacity to disobey. So then as we close, and I'll invite the team to come back, Paul actually anticipates some excuses that people pose to somehow justify their sin. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, If our righteousness brings out God's, oh, sorry, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. Verse 7, some, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? So here's the argument, and I find this uh, really fascinating. If I commit a sin, then my unrighteousness 
makes God's righteousness look even better. So I'm doing God a favour when I sin. That's the thinking. I mean, aren't I doing God a favour every time I sin because I'm making him look really good. So I'll do him a favour by continuing to sin and even more. That's the argument. Now, Paul doesn't actually answer that because it's totally ridiculous. And here's the thing, friends. When we come to Christ and are then filled by His Holy Spirit, the influence of the Holy Spirit now living in us means that God chooses to reveal His glory. And glory in this context is that moral character of God. God chooses to reveal His character through us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Which means our sin will never ever increase God's glory. All it will do is reduce God's glory, reduce the evidence of God's character in us. I hope that makes sense. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 and 18, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And Paul says when the glory of God, when the nature and character of God is not seen in us, again Romans 2 and 24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And friends, this series is called Being because we are called to be the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. And if we are living lives in true surrender, full surrender, complete surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, when we live in such a way that allows the Holy Spirit to reproduce God's character in us, in me, then when the world looks at the Christian church, they will see Jesus in people. Not religious nuts, not religious freaks, but very, very real people. The people they work with, their next door neighbours, the people even within their own family. That where the Spirit of God has taken up residency in a person's life, others will see the glory of God. They will see the character of God in us. They mightn't fully understand what it is. They may not even like it. But there is something that makes them take notice. And I pray that would be true for every single one of us. So as we wrap this up, Paul tells us there is a day of wrath, there is a day of judgment coming that includes me and it includes you. But there is good news coming and we get into the good news next week. But let us pray right now. Father, this is a sobering message and it's really, really challenging, no question. And Father, we don't like to think of the judgment of God, but I pray that we understand today. That judgment is a wonderful expression of God's love, that He values us so much that we will be accountable for the lives that He gives to us, that we matter to Him, that our lives matter to Him. And Father, for all that we've shared together this morning, I pray, Lord God, that we would not be a hypocritical people. I pray individually and corporately for us, God, that, that there would not be a bad word spoken that your name would not be in any way blasphemed from anything that we've said or done, but God, that we would live our lives transparently before you and that something of the reality of Jesus would be evident in us. 
And maybe for some of us this morning, there have been issues that your Holy Spirit has clearly shed a spotlight on and we've got to do some repenting. So, Lord, I do pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for wrong hearts, wrong attitudes. Forgive us, Lord, just for that attitude and that spirit of judgment, which is so often alive in the church, God. Father, we've got to recognize that we will stand before you and give an account. Who are we to judge? So, Lord, I, I pray, Father, that in doing business with you, in, in laying some of this stuff down, that stuff that will be exposed, God, that, that we wouldn't be, you know, like those Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. I pray that there would be life on the inside, renewal, daily renewal on the inside, that your Holy Spirit would be doing an ongoing work in us to reflect more of you in a real and authentic way to this world around us that so desperately needs, so desperately needs the truth, the pure gospel of Jesus. May that be seen in and through us individually and corporately, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.